We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to the Sorted Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1981's Excalibur, written by John Borman and Rospo Pallenberg and directed by John Borman. Here's a clip. Arthur, ready my knights for battle. They will ride with their king once more. I've lived through others far too long. Lancelot carried my honor and Guinevere my guilt. Mordred bore my sins. My knights have fought my causes. Now, my brother, I shall be king. All right, that was a clip from 1981's Excalibur, again, uh, written by John Borman and Rospo Pallenberg, directed also by Borman. Joining me to talk about this magnificent mythic epic is Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? I know you need to introduce Simon, but after you introduce Simon, I need to know why you chose this movie. Oh, I'm going to wallow in this this podcast, I think, uh, hearing what you guys <laughs> think about this movie. Uh, and of course... Ricky's referring to Simon Howell. Patrick, I'm delighted that you picked this movie. I think this is my favorite movie that you've picked since I got back. By the way, <laughs> this is one of three times someone has picked a movie to review on the show that I haven't yet seen, apart from, of course, new releases. So I know you love the movie, but it's it's not celebrating an anniversary. There's no remake on the horizon. It- it is, actually. It celebrated its 40th in, in April, April 10th. I, I happened to catch that. Now, I did not pick it because of that. That was mere coincidence. But it is, you know, it was made in 1981 and it released in April, April 10th, I believe, 1981. Oh, so, oh damn. Okay. So that was a coincidence. I just happened to see it in my DVD collection. And every once in a while, I like to pop in Excalibur. So, so this this movie is finally the age of the appropriate Excalibur viewer. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I think you do. It, although I watched this when I was younger. So the reason I picked this, Rick, is because when I was young, I was obsessed with Arthurian myth. And that was simply because my family couldn't afford a, an entire set of encyclopedias. But I did have the letter A in my room. And Arthur King and Australia were the two things that I read about the most. I just kept rereading the the A encyclopedia. And as I got older, I read more and more Arthur. I, led, I read uh, Mallory's Lamort to Arthur and... Um, you know, big fan of E.B. White's Sword in the Stone and all these other books. So I got really obsessed with Arthur Myth and I was watching, and I hate Arthur King Arthur movies for the most part. Even the like, Sword and Stone? I'm not a big fan of Disney's The Sword in the Stone, no. <laughs> I saw it, yeah, but it never really stuck with me because I actually like the myth elements of King Arthur instead of like the, the romance that they tend to inject into it. 
I like the harsher elements, and even as a kid, I liked the harsher elements, the more depressing elements, because it is not a, a happy story all the way through. There's lots of adventures and stuff, but there's a lot of bad things that happen along the way. Like, there's a reason that the book is called The Death of Arthur. Like, it's, <laughs> it's leading somewhere not great. I picked Excalibur because I love, I think this movie is one of my two favorite myth movies. The other one being Darren Aronofsky's Noah, which I think get myth. I think they get the hard, cold, like just pious, the piety of myth. And uh, and I don't mean like necessarily this is like a Christian movie. It's not. It's more. It's more has to do with like primordial religions and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, this is a uh, this is a a fantasy epic with divorced guy energy. Um, <laughs> and I and I mean that in the nicest way possible. Um, it's like. It, Borman, I don't, I haven't seen that many Borman films. Like I've seen this and Deliverance, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, and Point, uh, obviously, Point Blank. Point Blank is one of the best movies fucking ever made. Which, by the way, I'm uploading our review to the feed this week. Um, I still haven't seen Exorcist Two, actually, which I'm so curious about. The Heretic. <laughs> I know that it, I know that it has a cult and other people who that maybe rightfully think it's terrible. Um, but I don't know. This whole movie, it has the energy of a guy who's really into model trains or books about world war ii um like it's just it has this big analog goofy heart um and uh and and i think because of just how theatrical and um i guess open-armed it is in its sensibility uh it really worked on me over the over the course of its like pretty long runtime and by the end of it i was actually I was almost emotionally invested in in the fate of Arthur, which I think is a testament uh, both to the great performance by Nigel Terry, uh, yeah. and also just the sheer uh, batshit energy of this movie that just never lets up. And uh, I also, the, I mean, the other thing that I think really unifies this movie uh, beautifully is the combat, which is sluggish, mm-hmm. awkward, clanging, so much clanging. Uh, other than screaming, uh, a lot of b- b- the whole movie is basically screaming and clanging, or people being sassy. Those are the those are the three modes of this movie. Um, I, I love the the slow, heavy clanking, awkward, brutal, um, non heroic combat of this movie. Everyone's just like swinging around, missing each other. Um, like their the armor doesn't move so good. Uh, it's it's the total opposite of the sort of choreographed action you get in, I mean, basically anything now. Um, and I think that's sort of like the soul of the movie right there. It's this big, lumbering, awkward, analog um, v- uh, vision of this. And it's a very specific vision of, of this stuff. Like, I don't know the Arthurian legend very well, uh, but and I'm happy, Patrick, that you do. But I've heard from people that there is some you know, clearly there's a lot of divergences from the source material. Oh, yes. Yeah, there is. There is. Like I say, it gets the tone right. There are, uh, Arthurian legend is just a tangled web. There's so many different sources that yeah. nobody can claim that there's one true version of everything. He borrows from several different versions. I think he borrows mostly from, from Mallory's version, but he does take a lot of other things. And he takes things from stories that weren't even Arthurian legend, like this putting when he stabs the sword between Lancelot and Guinevere. Uh, when they're sleeping together in the forest. That's taken from Tristan and Isolde. And Isolde, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mallory's series of novels pretty much takes ideas from everyone who wrote about 
the myth of King Arthur and Excalibur previous and puts them into his own unique spin on it, right? But actually, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't there like several authors that are not entirely sure who Mallory is, like who the actual author is? Because they think like several people wrote that series of books. Am I mistaken here? Uh, they know who Mallory is. Right, they know who he is, but they don't think that he's the sole author of the book because he was in that, prison. Yeah, yeah, and that's entirely possible. Um, mm-hmm. and, and like I say, like you, there, you can take so many different things. Like he has to, like Gwen is a, just a. That's the Liam Neeson character, and we can get into how great this cast is. Um, Gwen is like a thug in this movie, and we may get into this later on. But Gwen is nothing like that in the in the legends. Gwen's actually one of the most important knights, and he's a, he's actually a legend that's older than Arthur. Gwen and the Green Knight is is a story that's older than the King Arthur tales. Um, well, and and also, isn't like the Lady of the Lake kind of like an active participant in the story, whereas in this movie, she kind of is just there to uh, give and receive a sword every once in a while. Yeah, yeah, like uh, that's the thing. There's so many different versions, right? Like Robert the yeah. Baron is the one who he's the author who linked the Holy Grail to yeah. the actual story and the concept of the sword and stone. So I feel like. Simon and I are completely on a different page, although I love this movie. Totally blown away by the movie. I was a little worried within the first 10, 15 minutes of watching a movie because, no offense, the acting isn't very good. Like, theatrical is one thing. Being hammy is another thing. Having the sound being dubbed in post-production made it even worse. Like, it just didn't really work for me. But, man, as soon as we get to, like, that dinner sequence when Gabriel Byrne is basically having an orgasm watching What's-Her-Face dance, <laughs> I was John like, daughter, who plays oh, my God. Yeah. You know what's so funny? So I thought it was his wife because I was checking out the credits for the movie, right? Nope. And I'm like, oh, okay, so his son and his daughter are in the movie. And yeah. so, like, who's this? This must be his wife. Yeah. No, that's nope. his, his daughter. He has two daughters in the movie. One of them plays Lady in the Lake. Uh, the hands, anyway. And well, three actually, because then another one of his daughter is the voice of young Mordred. Even though his son is playing young Mordred, he got. How many his fucking kids this man have? I don't know, man. But this dude decided to cast his daughter in a role in which she is seduced slash raped by Gabriel Byrne's character, which is just so weird because it's his daughter. But anyways, I thought it was his wife. But no, uh, Simon. Actually, I don't like the battle sequences or the combat. I do understand oh, your really? point, and it's a valid point. But look, the director himself, John Borman, said he had absolutely no interest in directing the action or the battle scenes. He just did not give a shit. He let them do whatever they wanted to do and just let the camera roll. There was no <laughs> choreography whatsoever. So you can tell, why, yeah. Yeah, you, you can, can tell. tell. He also had a great quote where because he, he got Irish extras to do the combat scenes. And he said, "It's when you hire Irish extras, you, you yell action and they'll do the fighting. But when you yell cut, they don't stop because they're settling old grudges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's like one or two battle scenes towards the not the end of the film but i was saying the middle chunk of like the second act that i kind of liked but most of it i didn't like and i think that age is the film to me i feel like john borman didn't set out to make a historical film thank god um like not it's at all, not no. it's not really set in a specific time or place britain is never actually even mentioned in the movie which is great who, who wants to think about Britain? Horrible place. <laughs> Does anybody remember Ridley Scott's Robin Hood? I don't need historical, like, versions. Oh, God. Horrible movie. Horrible yeah. movie. Like, I think it's fitting we don't have a date. And it everything sort of, like, re- remains nameless, like the land. Because it feels more magical. But I feel like the movie's really about, uh, what do you call it, chivalry? Yeah. There's a good chunk of that. Yeah, what it means to be a knight. What it means to be a knight, their, their oath... They're, um, what's the word I'm looking for? 
their like code, you know, like they all have like specific things that they believe in. So like, that's what I like about it. Like, it really focuses around King Arthur, his belief, you know, like, for example, when they have to prove that the queen is innocent, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah. it's, it's, it's a duel, right? It's a duel and there's specific rules that you have to follow. And so they, they honor those specific rules and it's stuff like that that I really, really love about the movie. Because, yes, there's a bit of magic and Excalibur and the wizard Merlin and all the things that you would expect to see. But I think it really zones in on what makes the legend of King Arthur like so fascinating. Like him himself, like he as a man and the whole Knights of the Round Table. Even though we don't really get to learn about the Knights of the Round Table, which is kind of like disappointing. You have to bring a lot into this movie. Uh, that's why I was wondering how much you guys would really like it, because you do... I mean, you, you'll get more out of this movie if you already are bring, bringing in a good deal of, of Arthurian knowledge. And Rick, I love that you brought up the Knights thing, because that is one of the biggest elements of the Arthur stories, in all the Arthur stories. It's it's this idea of being a knight. And this is one of the things that fascinated me when I was a kid. Yeah, I don't know that's why. what I love about it. Yeah, and it was this idea of purity, right? That only the the purest knight would be the best knight. And this movie tries it. It does impart enough of that for me to, you know, like to be satisfied. Uh, like it gets the idea that you know they they bring up that that only a true the true knight will win in combat in fair combat. The true knight, the knight who is right, is going to win under the eyes of God, right? And that was. That was actual, at some point, British law uh, that sort of coexisted with trial law, that you could have a champion, right? And this, there would be knights who, who didn't actually serve anybody, who went around the countryside as champions, and they would just get paid to settle disputes uh, for people. But the idea was the purer you were, <clears throat> the the better of a knight you would be. And that was why Lancelot was originally supposed to be the best knight in land, because he was the purest. But the whole Guinevere thing kind of sullied that. Right, but he still earned his his side by the king. Like he actually battled King Arthur, and yeah, King Arthur cheated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. King Arthur cheated, so therefore Lancelot Lancelot got what he wanted. But he himself, he wasn't born into a royal family. Like, yes, there was magic involved in conceiving him as a child, but he is who he is the king the chosen one because he's the only person who can actually lift the sword from the stone and so every single character like when it comes to the knights at the round table lancelot and so on and so forth they all deserve and and earn their place at the table and i wish the movie focused a bit more on that because for example he and lancelot are best friends but we don't really get to see their friendship develop we just get to see the friendship fall apart and I like I, I like the fact that this movie is one movie and, you know, 140 minutes might seem long, but it whizzes by so quick because there's so much, so much greatness to like stare at it in, the, in this movie. He's but, cramming a lot into this thing, too. Yeah, like, but I, It's I can, hard to get all this across. I can see Borman easily making a trilogy or at least two movies using this material. And I don't know if that would be better. I think maybe it would if the studio had given him like enough of a budget and creative control. That would have been amazing because this movie is so good. I was like, man, I wish there was another movie like this that I can watch. Well, I, I think we were all, we need to talk a little bit more about um, the aesthetic of this movie and just because I think that's really like the the plot and characters, and we can I'm, we'll have some disagreements about the acting, but to me, the vibe and the aesthetic is really what sold me on this movie. It's it's all fog and mist and forests and. Uh, and armor and gr- and weird green light and bizarre music. 
uh, and dream sequences that seem to go on forever, or maybe they're not dream sequences. There's there's a there's a very like heavy hallucinatory vibe, uh, and you know it, it's also like you can't talk about this movie without also talking about Monty Python and the Holy Grail, because <laughs> if you've seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I mean obviously it's it's derived from the same source material, but there are so many scenes that uh, like the, the bits and pieces that Borman has selected to represent are many of the same bits and pieces that are picked up on in Holy Grail. Uh, but I would actually, I not only do I think this is a better movie, I actually think this is a funnier movie than, <laughs> that, uh, than, that Monty than the it. Holy Grail. Uh, I want to question you about that for sure. Uh, I just, I, the, my viewing partner and I uh, found this movie to be completely hilarious. Um, maybe sometimes in unintended ways, but I think often quite intended. Um, and, uh, I think that the, the surreal vibe and just the way everything is wet and heavy and like unpleasant, it really contributes to that. Well, and they're like having sex in full armor. I think that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's kind of hilarious. And I, I don't know if Borman is intending that to be funny, but we, we were talking about this briefly before the podcast. Merlin is intended to be funny and he is funny. Yeah, I kind of agree with Simon, and I think it has a bit to do with the acting, which is all over the place in terms of like the range. Some actors can hit specific notes and and some actors just can't do it. I think the overdubbing makes things a little odd at times. Uh, I don't think the acting is terrible. I just think at times the acting seems out of place. But I did find it funny, and I found Merlin to be hilarious, like especially with his uh, inter-exchanges with uh, King Arthur, for example, yeah. uh, his monologues, the way he delivers his dialogue. And he actually does crack jokes throughout the entire film. Like when he jokes about how he's going to choose his wife, I thought that scene was amazing. Mm -hmm. But to me, and I'm jumping ahead here, but for me, the MVP of the film is Nicole Williamson. I think he's the glue that holds the film together yeah, and elevates it from being good to great. I love his performance from start to finish. I love the chemistry he has with the entire cast um the rest of the cast seem to just be energized and their performance and their on-screen presence just elevates to a whole new level because of him but the thing that's great about him is that this merlin isn't sort of the cliched merlin that we've that we that we've seen in in you know movies and books and animated films in the past where he's got the pointy hat and he's the wizard with the long white beard he still looks like a wizard, but he has his own unique look and he brings something to the performance that I haven't seen in, in any adaptation prior. So, yeah, I really like for me, Merlin is the the glue, like I said, that holds the film together. And he just like he's the MVP, the all star. And I think he brings that touch of comedy. Um, and it's funny because the original title for the movie was Merlin. And I think mm -hmm. they couldn't get the rights to the actual title for some reason. So they had to call it Excalibur. And I I don't think that's an accident. Like I think they were going to call it Merlin because in many ways he's the central character of the movie. Absolutely. Like, everything happens because of his actions. Like everything yeah. is in motion because of his actions and even what he doesn't do. So Merlin is both the hero and the villain in the film which is really amazing because he does some like really suspect questionable things that make him a bad guy, but yet he does a lot of things for the greater good type thing. There's a simple phrase to explain Merlin in this movie. Merlin in Excalibur is a messy bitch who loves drama. That's it. He he loves to shepherd. He, basically, he wants to be in control of everything. He wants to be the one to shepherd uh, England into this great new era. So he's constantly toying with humanity. 
uh, to get the best result. And of course, we see in the first 20 minutes his sort of first attempt uh, to to find like the one true king. And it doesn't work out so good. The way he delivers his line and just causes so much drama. He's yeah. sort of like Littlefinger from Game of Thrones, except he's actually like 10 times funnier and way more charismatic. Yeah. And like you the, you get the sense of a, of a, a figure who he's both like exhausted with humanity and also wants to like he's like an exhausted parent, uh, but he's also like horny. It's really it's really <laughs> weird. <laughs> very repressed, though. In it. Yeah, very repressed. Everyone's just always trying to figure out his sexuality. It's really funny. My days are ended. The gods of once are gone forever. It's a time for men. It's your time. I need you now more than ever. No. This is the moment that you must face at last, to be king alone. And you, old friend? Will I see you again? No. <laughs> there are other worlds. This one is done with me. You know what's really sad is most of the cast has passed away since making a movie, including some dudes who aren't really very old, like Nicholas Clay, who plays Lancelot. I had to look this dude up. I'm like, who is this guy? He died. He like he died like way back in 2001. Mm-hmm. Oh, I cannot read about Lancelot without picturing Nicholas Clay anymore. He is, mm. to me, the ideal looking Lancelot. Nigel Terry also, I think he passed at only like 69. Uh, really, really interesting dude to read about. Didn't didn't have a lot of screen credits, but um, no. yeah. More of a, a stage actor. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to bring him up because you, you talked about Nicole Williamson being the MVP. Like he turns into a great performance, no doubt. I, I give a lot of credit to Nigel Terry in this yes. because he has to go through different stages of, of age. And he handles them all beautifully. His performance as a teenager is so different than his performance as, uh, you know, a man in his 30s, 40s versus the man in his 50s, the dying Arthur kind of thing. Oh, look, look, okay. I'll give credit to a dude who was 36 years old trying to act like a 15-year-old, but that performance (laughs) did not work. I'm sorry. As good as he he tries to be, he's 36 years old playing a squire who's 15. Come on. I think he's brilliant in the mannerisms. Like, I'm sold on his naivete. What kind of crack are you smoking? (laughs) And Oh, he's so good in this movie. So good. Simon, do you agree? Where do you stand? Um, I mean, I think that when he's playing a child, it's insanely goofy. It's, it's <laughs> but I, but I like it. It's I, I like that. Uh, you know, it's kind of nice to know. One of the things that I like about watching movies that are a little older is to think about how okay. So if they did this now, there'd be digital de aging um, and all that, which is fine. Like sometimes that could even look good. Sometimes, uh, but I don't know. I kind of like the the goofiness of just having a grown ass man pretend to be a teenager for about fifteen minutes. <laughs> It's the overdubbing. Watch, watch yeah. the scene without sound, and you're gonna be like, "Okay, this dude is—he's doing a good job. Like, he kind of looks like a kid who just looks older." But because of the overdub, it you—you you can't help it escape. Like the sound of his voice sounds like a man's voice, and so yeah, that's what—that's what I mean about how it's. I, I'm not criticizing the acting overall, but it's the combination of casting choices mixed with the overdubbing plus the performance. So. I don't know. It just did not work for me. I mean, it worked for me in the sense that I could not stop laughing, which like Simon, I thought this movie was funny at times, which is a good thing because I was entertained. But I I thought it was goofy, too. Goofy is the proper word I would use. Yeah. Well, I think that's sort of the I mean, goofy is good. Like, I love movies that are that are goofy these days. Like I find nowadays, most most films 
uh, are either trying to be funny or they're trying to be self-serious. Um, and I, I feel like something, something we've lost, like they, they truly don't make them like this anymore. I'm not trying to say that. I know that I'm getting old and I, and I think that more about more things, but they truly do not make them like this anymore. No, there's a theatricality to it that is, I think it, it has a different style and you're right. The overdubbing, this is, there's barriers to, to this movie being absolutely kind of huge it. barriers. It's, I mean, it's a 140 minute long movie yeah. where like 90% of the characters are rapists. Well, uh, no, I'm just kidding. They uh, don't but... really get into the characters in a lot of sense. No. You don't you don't feel you ever emotionally connect to people in this movie other than maybe Percival at the end. And that's only simply because he's he has a couple of lines. That actor has a couple of lines. Percival is great, yeah. He's yeah. fantastic. Paul he Jeffrey's so yeah. good as Percival. And but but but, but uh, like again, Patrick, I just have to repeat myself. It's the overdubbing, and it's the same for any movie shot in the seventies for whatever reason needs to overdub things because especially it was, outside anything. Yeah, outside. because it was cheaper for them to actually record the 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 the, um, uh, the, the lines in post production as opposed to recording sound. Yeah, but, well, he, Borman talks about that. By the way, it's because there were so many. There were yeah. so many noises going on that, yeah, they, they simply could not. They had to overdub everything. It just wasn't going to happen. They were never going to be able to. Right, but, but that's the thing. That. So when, when you're overdubbing everything in post-production, you have two actors, say, sitting in a studio side by side, and they're supposed to be reciting the lines from the movie. But in that actual scene, you have two actors who are about, like, 10 feet apart who are yelling at each other in a battlefield. Like, you're not going to get the same kind of performance. You know what I'm saying? No, but everybody's yelling in this movie. I'm just glad he brought that up because I always laugh because they everybody screams their lines half the time. They're just like when they, uh, there's one line where where Uther's going through and he's like, "Where's Merlin? Have you seen Merlin?" And this guy just walks past him and goes, "I haven't." <laughs> like, Damn, dude. <laughs> we we should uh, quickly just mention who's in this movie for because um, I'm pretty sure a lot of people listening to this podcast haven't watched the movie. Okay, so first of all, Helen Mirren. Nicholas Clay, Paul Jeffrey, Nicole Williamson, Gabriel Byrne, Liam Neeson, Patrick Stewart. I mean, the list goes on and on. Kieran Hines in a small role. This entire cast in a movie before most of them were even big, huge stars. Like it's 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 yeah. it's, it's it's interesting to see them in this mo- movie, even if you know they have small roles. Liam Neeson looks older in this movie than he does now. It's incredible. <laughs> I don't know how that's possible. He looks so... So you were talking about this movie being clumsy, Simon. Like, Liam Neeson, to me, looks like the clumsiest knight out there. Is, is oh, yeah. He's a, he's a real gangly-looking motherfucker. And again, like, we'll get to this later. I, I have very few problems with this movie. Like, I don't mind the overdub to me. It's part of the charm. And you, like you said, Simon, they don't make movies like this anymore. I like the weirdness of this movie so much this this is a strange movie i don't know that they really made a ton of movies like this even back then but um, no no they definitely oh, didn't yes they did we, we should come up with a list and review them maybe not like hundreds there but i would some, say like there, yeah there are some that sort of approach this this well sort of like this, dude this, fantasy this. films from the 80s they're all like this like we need to review more of them for real they're well, so the, fun to watch the, i think this would make a great double feature with uh paul verhoven's flesh and blood because uh they're they're sort of like alternate takes on the same period and like the the, the borman movie is very spiritual and uh leans into myth whereas the verhoven movie is all about uh dirt and fucking and a uh, plague and uh and everything is really gross and down to earth 
uh, and very small scale. And I think between those two movies, you kind of have a, a, a nice representation of the period. Mind you, there is a, uh, a sequence in this film, like an entire uh, chapter in which it does get very dark. And the Knights at the Round Table, they go in search of King Arthur's half-sister. And they end up in this like weird forest and it's all foggy. And they're all, they've all been assassinated and are hanging from the trees and like there's bodies everywhere and it's just like it's really dark it feels yeah it feels like a completely different movie at one point in time like and i just like you know what the best and biggest compliment i'm going to give this movie it gets better and better with each scene absolutely yeah uh my, my viewing partner and i were marvel like you know, the first 20 minutes you're watching you're like okay this is goofy I don't know if I can put up with 140 minutes of this, but it's fun right now. <laughs> and then by the end, it has a cumulative effect. Like, mm-hmm. and I and I found this especially with uh, with Arthur himself because for the first little while, I was like, I wasn't sure if this guy could lead a movie, honestly. Uh, but I think as he gets older and older, he really does a great job, like layering in all the just weariness of of, of the scenario, yeah. um, and also the way it, it slowly folds in, like you said, Percival and Lancelot. Um, and it really, it, it, they, I think he did a great job. Um, like you, you were talking about how you wanted more knights in there. I think there's the, I think there's the correct number of characters, uh, getting, getting time in this movie. Like it would, maybe it would be nice to get more, but I, I thought the, um, I would love to see him have made two or three movies with these characters. Oh, so long as sure. all two or three movies were good. Yeah. But I just mean for the scope of this movie, I think that it's, I think that it's uh, good. This can't have been an easy project to write and try to edit down and get to like a coherent narrative. And I mean, the movie is very episodic in a way. Riddle um, me this. How did he convince the movie studios to let him make this movie? And how did he make this movie for $11 million? Cause it looks like it cost like 112 million. Oh, it looks, he, it looks very expensive. Yeah. For one thing, the like sword, definitely. like just the sword itself, the way they always shine the green light on it. So it sparkles and has this magical like hue to it. So they they shown that green light. Even he he said they always had that green light running, even when they were shooting daytime scenes in the forest. They just he wanted to amp up the green of everything all the time, no matter whether you saw it reflected or not. I know it's practical effects, and maybe it's not as complex as I'm making it sound. Like for example, they do a lot of like cross dissolves where you have the holy grail and it's being cross dissolved with. I think it's like an image of a, a staircase. You know, like that's not very complicated to do, but. What about the scene when Lancelot pulls out the sword from his body? I'm like, what? How? Do you want me to tell you the trick of that? So you've got, obviously, the retractable sword, which is your prop, but they cleverly show the sword poking out the other side of his skin, right? Exactly. Well, that's a separate piece that he's holding in place by lying there. And you'll note in the scene, as soon as he's about to pull the sword out, which is, again, just a retractable prop, he, he has to shift his body so that when the other piece on the bottom falls, you will not notice that. Well, thanks like, a lot, Patrick, for ruining it for me now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what I'm saying? Like, look, he didn't have a big budget. It's it's a but huge movie with tons of great. And with tons of extras, tons of horses, tons of animals. I'm sure they shot on a studio, but they also shot in Ireland, like, you know, on lo- location. And yeah. it's two and a half hours long. I think the original cut was three hours long. So, like, God knows how much film he actually had to work with. It's like a huge project, and to do to to, to make this movie for eleven million and for it to be this good, it, and before uh, before you know it's CGI and like the the effects that we have nowadays, like man, he did an amazing job. 
Yeah, I, I think he did an amazing job because he also and he also stayed focused on what he wanted. I think his whole idea of of, of committing to that theme of the land, tying Arthur to the land, it, mm-hmm. it works so much in this movie's favor because those shots of the forest, that rich, mossy forest, are just mm-hmm. they make the whole the whole thing seem ancient and old. This really sells the the tale aspect of it. And I love the way the landscape changes over the course of the movie. And you're right, as it gets more serious, like all of a sudden we're getting into winter and there's the mud scene, which is what I always think of from Monty Python when the people are just playing with the mud. <laughs> like That's straight out of the Holy Grail. John yeah. Borman should have directed a live action movie based on the Legend of Zelda series. Well, oh. as long as we're talking about John Borman and adaptations, uh, he gave a really, really great interview to, I think, The Guardian just a couple of years ago. John Borman, unlike most of the cast of this film, is still with us. And um, he was talking about how in the 70s, he was in touch with the Tolkien estate because he was developing. Uh, he wanted to make one movie, uh, one movie Lord of the Rings adaptation that was just going to be really long, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. And his plan for The Hobbits, because this was the, the 70s was to cast children as the hobbits and then just put makeup on them and, and redub the voices, uh, which the interviewer was like, hey, that sounds like it could have been horrible. And he's like, yeah, it probably would have been. <laughs> <laughs> I know in a lot of interviews, he does cite Excalibur as his personal favorite, and he believes it's his greatest accomplishment. That's he, he really say saying something. He said in the commentary it's one of the only movies of his that he can actually rewatch. Which, by the way, is saying a lot because this is the dude who directed Point Blank. And Deliverance, yeah. yeah. But Point Blank, to me, is a masterpiece. Yes, I agree. No, I mean, I think he's underrating Point Blank. But, uh, yeah. And it's it's amazing that they're even directed by the same fucking person. Like, can we marvel at that for a second? <laughs> I know. like Point Blank is this minimalist, like, almost avant-garde in its, ev- in its editing little revenge movie. And this feels tonally, aesthetically, et cetera, nothing like it. I, I don't know about that. Like I said, I re-uploaded our review of Point Blank, so listeners should check it out. But to me, that entire film is a fever dream. Um, I also love the music in this movie. I love how it opens up with, you know that, and you know the song. It's the yeah, yeah. Siegfried Funeral March. Yeah. Richard Wagner, like that song. I I know the song. It's amazing. It opens. I think it bookends the movie actually, but it also has the song "O Fortuna" from Carmina Burana. Most people remember the "O Fortuna" song from this movie. He uses it twice at two very big moments in the movie. Is is that the same piece? I know that there's a Wagner piece that is also very. I think it's from Tristan and Isolde. That's in here. Uh, and it's also, of course, very, very prominently used in Lars von Trier's Melancholia, which it, it like now I have the same uh, like the that that's the key association for the music in my mind. So now even when it showed up here, I was like, oh, I guess the world is ending. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. No, you're right. Yes, that's because that's what the, the actual song I think is about. Yeah. But or for old Fortuna, whatever it's called from Carmina Buran. I can't pronounce the fucking names of these songs, but I always think of interview with the vampire whenever mm. I hear that song. Yeah, I, so, I only think of Excalibur when I hear that song. It's two great moments. <laughs> I love it when directors mix in classical music with their movies because clearly those songs have aged with time. They are timeless. And it just, the the, the soundtrack itself, like, like I said, even the actual score is just as good as the cinematography. So this, this movie is amazing. By the way, the cinematographer, Alex Thompson, so I don't really know who this guy is, right, by name. But then you check out his his uh, credits on Internet Movie Database, and he's 
the same man who did a cinematography for movies like Hamlet and Legends. And so it kind of makes sense. Like this guy has like, uh, like his 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 resume is pretty pretty impressive. And Demolition Man and Labyrinth. But you know what I mean? Like think about it. Like think of a movie like Labyrinth, Excalibur. And legend. And legend, yeah. Uh, clearly, if you were doing like high highbrow fantasy back in the eighties, you went to yeah. this guy. And For I'm real. sure that he would have gotten a gig like Legend because he'd done Excalibur. Yeah, I mean Ridley Scott had to have seen Excalibur and just said, "I this, hold my beer." This I movie pisses this. on Ridley Scott's face from a great height. I'm sorry, <laughs> he could never have made a movie this good. It's because of the substance. This movie actually has some. Uh, Bor- yes. Borman at least knows how to, to tell a story. Simon, he- sometimes you say these things that just come out of nowhere, and I think you're on crack. Ridley Scott's made some amazing movies. What yeah. are you talking like about? Like 40 years ago. Come oh, on. come yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. No, so I this agree. movie They're was made in 1981. Ago. What has John Borman done lately? Well, he's very he's old. He's made a movie about talking to horses and trees. <laughs> you know what? That's probably better than anything Ridley Scott's done in 30 years. I have to quickly give a shout out to Helen Mirren. Her character is my second favorite character in the movie. Her performance is maybe the second best performance in the movie. She plays Morgana. Yeah. So, so along with Merlin, I think those two characters pretty much dominate the film. And I think their performances overshadow the rest of the cast, which is... Kind of too bad for Nigel Terry because, yeah, he does a pretty good job as King Arthur, but I don't really think he's the lead in the movie. Like I said, I really do think Merlin is the lead character in the film. Yeah, Merlin is the lead. I mean, the the story kind of shifts, right? Because it starts off with Arthur and Merlin, but that's the, this is also the way that the Arthurian legend kind of works. It doesn't always just follow Arthur. It follows his knights. And I would say the story's more about the Grail and Percival in the end. And it, and it becomes more of a uh, a theme, a thematic piece at the yeah. end, where it is about renewing the land. And it's not so much, it's not important that it's Arthur. It's just that Arthur is the king. And the king is a symbol. And everybody needs to recognize how this, you know, how, how everything works in nature, right? This is, a, that's what it's all about. And it's not so much like Arthur's story or even Merlin's story anymore. Yeah, the king sucks. The uh, the king sucks, and also, um, it is about the land, but it's also about like, um, it's about the folly of being horny. Like, it's about like at the, it see they make it seem at first like with with being horny you can do anything. Like you can get so horny that you can gallop over the mist. This literally <laughs> happens in the movie. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it not only literally happens, but he he tells him your lust will sustain you. Yeah, like literally, it's it, it's sort of like um it's sort of like in Game of Thrones how there's like the 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 red mistress with her special magic. In this movie, like being horny is like the black magic, uh, yeah. and if you fuck with it. It's not good. There's also sort of the idea of returning to a more simplistic, like in the beginning of the movie, it's all very good. Life is good because they're, they're, they're almost acting instinctually. And Merlin's cool with that because that's the old ways. But once civilization develops, you notice they start to get more decadent. And Arthur's big downfall in, in the legend as well is this reliance on rules, which we always value, right? We always value this logic and trial law. But that ultimately is what leads the flaws in that or what leads to Arthur's demise. It's what leads to the, the Lancelot Guinevere thing, because unfortunately, his his uh, refusal to participate in sort of humanity and his is keeping a step back and trying to always remain logical uh, and above everything, which he does a little bit in this movie, too, when she wants him to champion her. But he can't because he's the king and he must be the judge and he has to play it fair. 
that is what leads to his downfall in the end. Like he sort of he, he steps too far away from humanity. Right. And, he he tries to just let the rules steer events. Yes. And then the world the world like does it it's not the world anymore. It's not nature anymore. It's not it's not natural for this for this civilization to have cropped up and so they have to balance. But that that's what I like about the film. Like like I said this earlier on, it's the way John Borman's film is interested in the ideas that make up the myth, the concept of chivalry, the medieval knightly system with its religious code, its social code, its moral code, how he reacts and acts to like what he's supposed to do versus what he wants to do, temptation versus like being respons- responsible. And I don't, I don't know, like I, I, I wish, I just wish we had more, of him and Lancelot, but maybe because Lancelot is such a great character. He's not my favorite. Cause it's like, he doesn't get much screen time and the performance is like, okay. But I do agree with you, uh, Patrick, that his look though is perfect. perfect. Like, Nicholas Clay yeah. looks, yeah. looks the part. Uh, and I think he plays the part. I just don't think he has much to do. He has the great fight with himself, which I think is oh, good. That's such a great scene. And, mm. uh, you know, his eyes tell a lot of the story. He doesn't have many lines, but his looks at Guinevere to me are, are heartbreaking in a way. And again, because I love this story. Um, like that that tells a lot. It, I bring a lot to this movie, so I enjoy it on, a, on that level. Um, but I think his performance is still really, really good regardless. You get the idea of what he's getting across. We're going to have to break soon. But the last thing I wanted to mention is uh, another thing this movie is about is religion. Like, I can't believe we haven't talked about religion. Uh, But I mean, specifically in terms of the way, like, uh, there's this conflict or this, uh, this overlapping between the the pagan gods and the, the coming of, 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 uh, of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's good stuff. That's all I can say. But it's in the background. It's sort of in the background, but it's also sort of uh, less so as it goes on. Well, when you're starting to get into the Holy Grail, then you're starting to really get way more into that that i i always wondered who they were driving away at the very beginning of the movie when they're unifying the land like when they say we drove them back into the sea and we killed most of them but we left a few of them alive to go tell the the northern people were they i didn't know if they were driving away romans or or vikings or both maybe <laughs> i don't know i don't even know if john borman knows no no but i always loved that little bit it's just this like okay they're 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 pushing invaders out i assume it was romans just based on the, the the time period maybe it was vikings though i can't really tell he never really gets into it but yeah with that maybe we should take a quick break and when we come back we will do our five questions before that here's another clip from excalibur a king must marry after all so it seems <laughs> I love her. If only she'd be my queen. Merlin, can you make her love me? Now look, I once stood exposed to the dragon's breath so that a man could lie one night with a woman. It took me nine moons to recover and offer this lunacy called love, this mad distemper that strikes down both beggar and king. Never again. Never. Who will I marry then? You can tell me that at least. What do you see? Huh? Oh, Guinevere. And a beloved friend will betray you. Guinevere. 
You're not listening. Your heart is not. Love is death as well as mine. That's it. You have a land to quell before you can start all this hair pulling and jumping about. I've made these only for you. I've mixed into them things that will heal you. Not too quickly. And they'll make you a little sleepy, so you can't escape. What's in them? It's an ancient mixture. Soft, unborn grains, flavoured with rose petals. The rest is secret. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at the cake's like looking at the future. Until you've tasted it, what do you really know? And then, of course, it's too late. All right, that was another clip from Excalibur. We have reached the portion of the podcast where we do our five questions. Uh, it's easy to start off positive with this movie, but Simon, what's your favorite scene from Excalibur? I think, oh, there's a lot of amazing sequences in this, but I have to say... Um, the, the sequence where Percival, uh, is, uh, going after the grail and he ends up, uh, kind of backtracking and going, just saying, ah, fuck this and going back over the bridge and into the boat or whatever, that whole sequence. And just the, I, I almost just want to give, give this to Percival and the grail in general and just say, that's my favorite stuff. That's my favorite strand in this movie. So I'll give it to that. That was going to be, so I, I had several scenes lined up in case you guys picked various things. Of course uh, you did. That was one of mine on there. I love the the interplay between him, Morgana, and Mordred. And that whole, like, when she tells him how long, it's hard, it's kind of heartbreaking for Percival when she says how long you've been out there. And he says, so long, and I found nothing. And I just was so glad to hear a child laughing. Uh, he delivers those lines so sincerely. And then... The sort of the tragic, you know, being afraid of the grail kind of thing. Um, mm. And yeah, all of that right, right up to where he's hung. And it, it's a great, great sequence. And then and, later on when he redeems himself is fantastic. Rick, what about your favorite? I mean, that entire sequence. So I pretty much agree with Simon. I love the whole search for the Holy Grail. And I think Percival elevates the third act, I guess you can Absolutely. call it the third act. Yeah, yeah he's fantastic. He was up for the part of Arthur, but he ended up as Percival. Without his character in a third act, I think the movie would have outstayed its welcome. So I'm going to go with my backup choice. It's a really simple scene. It lasts maybe like a good two minutes, but it's when King Arthur is trying to choose his wife and he asks Merlin if he can use his magic yes! to... <laughs> to make her fall in love with the king and he flips out and he's like the last time i oh. did that i had to wait nine moons to like regenerate and blah 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 and he's giving him like this whole big speech about how much power it takes <laughs> to have to 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 persuade a lady to fall in love with a man my viewing partner and i i swear to god we we not only laughed our asses off at that but we i think we rewound and watched that scene like at least two more times his Dude, delivery it's, it's is amazing. so fucking funny that it's second never it gets me every time when he says, I will never, never do that again. And then he waits for a second. Never. <laughs> uh, apparently, uh, A, Nicole Williamson and Helen Mirren did not like each other at all. Like they were just, they did not get along, which is kind of funny to read about. 
they had a uh, previous argument from a version of Macbeth that they did together. Yeah, uh, apparently not not such not such great relations on set, but uh, an amazing performance. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely the whole cookie thing too. I love the cookie. Looking into the cookie is like looking into the future. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, all right, so my favorite scene, all those great, they were all on my list. Uh, my favorite scene that I, the number one I was going to go to is the siege of, of Patrick Stewart's, um, you know, uh, oh, I can't remember what his, his name is in the actual movie. Some of these nights uh, have... Leo de, Leo de Grants. Yeah, Leo de that's, that's the one. Never really a character that stood out for me if he was even in the Mallory No, story. he stands out for being played by Patrick Stewart. Exactly. But he's a great character, and I love the whole buildup of the siege, where Arthur runs away... Now, it's a little more than just a scene, but a sequence where Arthur runs away. He's got the whole night thing, uh, the nighttime scene where Merlin has to sort of convince him what he is. And then in the morning, you know, Merlin convinces him to make the decision to go to go help out at the siege. But for me, it's the end of that scene that, that represents a lot of what I love about Arthurian myth. And that is when Urien's knights Arthur, and Merlin is even surprised by it. Because that that is part of that story, that Arthur was more than what Merlin thought he would be. Mm-hmm. I think that's the only time Merlin's surprised in the entire movie. Yeah, yeah. And that, that was something that was, it was a surprise. Every once in a while, Merlin would be surprised by Arthur in the books. Surprised by, he was toying with him, but he'd be surprised by just how good Arthur you know, was at being what Merlin wanted him to be. Um, and that to me, like that, that little moment right there, it, it, it encapsulates a lot of different things about Arthur. myth, like Rick, the knight stuff, like the honor among knights, the way that Urien's now has the sword and could declare himself King. And all the other knights are looking at him like, what is he going to do? And he does the honorable thing in the end by virtue of seeing what, what, you know, Arthur's, Arthur's courage in that moment and honor in that moment. So yeah, it, it has a little bit of everything uh, for me. I love that scene. Gets me every to, time. I'm starting to piece together what goes into the ideal Patrick movie. And I think a big, I think a big part of it is there has to be some idealism. I and, do like idealism. Yes. And there's, a, I mean, Arthurian legend is all about idealism, even if it's met with tragedy, like it is in in an Arthurian legend. I'm I'm surprised you guys like this movie so much because of all the trivia I read on Internet Movie Database, of which there is a lot. The one that stood out the most was this is Zack Snyder's favorite movie. I saw that. I saw that. Which is funny because there's no slow motion. But I think, I mean, it makes total sense that he would love this movie because this movie has such respect for uh, the scope of myth. And it has no, even though it, the movie is funny, it's it's not funny in a wink, wink way. It's funny in a, these characters are amusing and the performances are amusing, but it takes the myth deadly seriously. Oh, yes. And it's the movie you can tell he has wanted to make, that he's trying to make. He clearly tried to turn, you know, his his Superman and Justice League into myth. And uh, he's still working on it, but he hasn't quite got there. <laughs> uh, all right. If there's one thing you could change, just one thing, and there must, there's probably is only one thing to change in Excalibur, what would it be, Simon? Um, I would only say this because I think it's a barrier to people enjoying it. Uh, if you want to take out, I don't know, 25% of the screaming, I think pop people might find the movie a little more accessible. I've, I've spoke, cause I spoke to other people 
who have either seen the movie or are thinking about it or whatever, and they they do chalk it up as one of those 80s movies, sort of like the Goonies. There's a lot of yelling in this movie. Everybody yells their lines half the time. Like, yeah, well, because everyone's, everyone's outside for basically the entire movie. There's battle <laughs> scenes. People are on fire. People are getting stabbed and crunched in their armor. It's just, and it, it results in a lot of yelling, and it makes sense, but I think yeah. some people will find it a little grating. And I think that's why some of those quieter moments, like the conversation with the cookie about about Guinevere, they're not yelling and screaming during that, although there is a lot of whooping and hollering going on in the background. But it's, or Percival's sort of quiet delivery, they're yeah. very refreshing. Um, Rick, what about you? What What would you change? So I don't think you will disagree with me, but there are plenty of times in which the movie has a passage of time in which we go from one scene or one shot to the next shot and like 10 years has passed or five years or a year or 20 years. And I feel like, at least for me, and I'm pretty sure for a lot of viewers, you can at, at times be a little bit lost and it'll take you like a few minutes to kind of like figure out that, oh, it's been like a few years since so-and-so happened, right? So for example... There, there would be like a scene in which Merlin is talking to King Arthur and then they'll just cut right away to uh, uh, the next scene. But the next scene actually takes place 10 years later. And I was thinking about Ravenous, which we reviewed, I think, two weeks ago. And Ravenous does a really clever in Ravenous. The director uh, uses a really clever technique to show how time has passed. He shows the moon changing. Right. So you'll see like a half a moon and then you'll see like a full moon. So, you know, like it's been like a few days. So I'm not entirely sure how they could have done it. I mean, there's plenty of ways they could have done it. But I think if they just showed the audience how much time has passed, I think it wouldn't have taken me out of the movie for even if it's only for two minutes, it still pulled me out of the movie, out of the magic of the movie, because I'm trying to figure out, wait, who's this? What's happening? Like, wait, he's old now. You know what I mean? Yeah, like Lancelot being a crazy old man. You don't even recognize him. You're like, who is that guy? Oh, he's yeah, that is confusing. Lancelot. It's true. <laughs> Specifically when his uh, sister seduces him and then she, you know, conceives a child. They, they conceive the child because she seduces him. And then, boom, you cut. And it's like, I guess, like 10 years later because her son is now 10 years old. And then you cut and boom, her son's like 17. Now, when we cut from her son being 10 to 17, it makes sense because you have that beautiful transition the cross dissolve, right? Yeah. But when you cut from her seducing Arthur to her just like, you know, living under Earth. in a cave. Yeah, yeah. like it's just yeah. like, what? <laughs> like, when did this happen? Yeah, she does say you've been out searching for 10 years, but you're like, you have no idea what the how long. It could have been one year for all you know. Um yeah, the, uh, I'll agree with you there. I would say there are probably three or four disorienting edits in this movie that I would have probably changed just to, just to sort of do like what you're saying, just to clarify uh, the passage of time sometimes. Uh, but again, like, it's hard for me to go back and look at this movie in that way. I, <clears throat> I can't see it for the first time again. And I know it so thoroughly inside and out that it's hard for me. Yeah, I, I watch it with the commentary on, which gives you a good idea of what it looks like just visually, whether or not it, it makes any sense. But um, yeah, I, I would agree with you. There are there are three or four cuts. So the one thing I would change would be from more of a from a legend status and just a personal thing. Uh, I would get I would have given Gwen a uh, different. I, I think Gwen is the only part that I quarrel with in this entire movie. Morgana is not. She's a composite character. That's that's not a character in any of the. Any of the myths. That's a combination of Morgan Le Fay and then this like Morgauser. I don't know how her name is pronounced, but um, that's fine. I understand. Like you do need some composite ca characters in a movie like this when you're just trying to boil everything down to its essence. But having Gawain in there and be this total just 
oaf. I don't like this. He's kind of a dick. He's a drunkard. He's a lout. Like that was not Gwen at all. Gwen was a pretty sharp, sharp guy. He was actually Arthur's nephew. And he was, uh, he was one of his loyalists. And he was one of the only ones when Arthur was going to burn Guinevere at the stake for, for cheating on him. Um, because that did happen. And Lancelot ended up becoming a rebel. Um, Wait, sorry, you're talking about Liam Neeson's character? Yeah, Liam Neeson's character. Okay. Gwen was the only one who was like completely against this this what led to the total breakdown. Gwen in many ways was the the smartest of the the Knights of the Round Table. Uh, and he he had a better idea of what was going on in Camelot than Arthur did a lot of the time. And he was a, he was one of his, you know, most trusted advisors. Uh, so to see him portrayed by Liam Neeson as this slobbering drunkard, <laughs> like, I was like, okay, this has nothing to do with Gwen whatsoever. I don't know. You could have just called him any other random knight. There's so many knights. You could have picked any name. You didn't have to destroy Gwen. Wow. You didn't but... have to do Gwen dirty like that. <laughs> Outside of that, that's the only, the only quarrel I have. I don't care about the specifics, how he changes certain other things, because those things, you know, don't really matter. You know, when it comes to myth, you can rearrange certain parts. But it, it kind of it was it was sad to see Gwen get the shaft. All right, so MVPs, Rick. We got a little bit of your MVP earlier on. Um, Simon, what about your MVP? Oh, uh, for once, I'm just going to agree and say Nicole Williamson. I mean, he's th- there's so many great performances in this movie that I that I value deeply. But I mean, so many people who've seen this movie and have seen many, many, many more Arthur adaptations than I have all agree that he's the best screen Merlin. And oh, yeah. uh, I mean, that fucking headgear That's alone, close. <laughs> that headgear is incredible. Yeah. That, like <laughs> that little button. aluminum cod piece or whatever the, whatever you want to call it or something. It's, it's really good. It adds so much. Um, And so Rick, you're, you're also going with Nicole uh, Williamson on this one. Yes, but I cheated because I gave out my pick in the first half of the podcast. My backup is Alex Thompson. And I'll give you two reasons why. Number one, The original cinematographer slash DOP had a nervous breakdown on set and they had to escort him out and hire someone new. Do you you know why? Uh, No, why? That's because they shot the the original, uh, the first scene, the opening scene when they're doing the sort of the night attack. Mm -hmm. The footage came back both nights in a row. They had completely underexposed it and it came back to like showing nothing, just completely black. Oh my God. Two nights of shooting were completely wasted. And the wow. guy broke out. He wasn't fired. He he quit. <laughs> this is before uh, modern technology. We can actually see what it looks like as you're filming live. Yeah. Wow. Um, but yeah, and also like I like I mentioned before, like this is the same dude who was a cinematographer for movies like Labyrinth and Legend in the '80s, and therefore you know that it's most likely his vision and his decisions that gave us this beautifully gorgeous, amazing, unique, uh, just I don't know brilliant film like to look at like just this movie looks i mean look depending like maybe the quality of the picture might not be so good depending on where you're watching the movie like i don't know if this is available on on blu-ray but i would love to see criterion release this film with a, a beautiful restoration of the print because i do think the cinematography is beautiful yeah this is a gorgeous movie it needs a remaster i, I mean I, I would like to see criterion just do more borman movies in general i mean the guy's still alive and probably not for much longer. Like, let's, you know, use his, uh, you know, get him in recording featurettes and you know, commentaries and documentaries and shit. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm going to choose Borman because I think of it for his treatment of the material. I, I I love how he handled, 
the Arthurian myth and a lot of the imagery that I take now from I, like it's just burned into my brain mm-hmm. as being part of the myth. The when when Percival throws Excalibur back to the Lady of the Lake, that shot to me of the sword twirling through the air, it's kind of Sam Raimi-ish in a way. But yeah, um, I love that. That to me is now that is representative of this story. Uh, his Lancelot, like I know that's not necessarily all him, but his casting. So many things. The, the the sword rising out of the water, uh, Merlin approaching from, you know, in the very opening scene when Merlin approaches over the hill, silhouetted against the smoke and the orange light. Stuff like that is now, to me, part of what I think of when I read or think about Arthurian myth. And mm-hmm. so for me, that's Borman right there. Like, he chose specific things that I now think of as being canon, <laughs> I guess, if you want to call it that. Like, those images, to me, are now canon. All right, so we did MVPs, but is this a great movie? Rick, uh, your answer, actually both your answers are going to be curious to me, because obviously you know what my answer is going to be, because I don't think there's a single bad scene in this movie. But a great movie is defined by Howard Hawks as having three great scenes and no bad ones. Uh, Five bags of popcorn, I have no bad scenes. All (laughs) all the popcorn, give it, no, like I, there's nothing I would want to take out of this thing. If if anything, I would want to add stuff, just like Ricky. Yeah, adding stuff would be great. You could make a three-hour movie out of this, and I think it would still play really well. Uh, Rick, what do you think, though? Is there... The Howard Hawks test. Does the movie have three great scenes and no bad scenes? The movie has no bad scenes. I think this movie has 17 great scenes. 17, count them. So I do think (laughs) it passes the Howard Hawks test. And in fact, I think he could have made two movies, and therefore we would have had two movies that passed the Howard Hawks test with like 17 times two in bad math here. What is it, 34 great scenes? It would have been interesting to see Borman do a rise of King Arthur, ending with Camelot and everything like that, and then decline of King Arthur for a second movie. It's almost record-breaking. 17 great scenes. White Man Can't Jump at 18. <laughs> Were you doing a little like a, like a checking them off as they go to keep track? For sure. Oh. <laughs> Neat. Well, the, the uh, first great scene, I think, is the, the scene in which she gets seduced by Gabriel Byrne's character. I thought that was so trippy. Yeah. The I like the when they when he does like the taking the helmet off. Mm. Oh, they the edit there when it's just like it it's there's like a little yeah it's great. Very it's good. perfect. And that little ripple that goes through works for me for some reason. I like it there. It's not seamless. It makes it seem like yeah there is trickery going on here because that's what's happening in the scene. Uh, whereas nowadays it would have just been a completely CGI you know morphing or seamless, something else. Seamless, yeah, yeah. And I, it wouldn't have seemed as magical, but the actual use of trickery. Um, in the camera or in the the filmmaking process kind of lends itself to that. Uh, all right. Like, all right. So Simon, you, you watch this with somebody does yeah. Excalibur have an audience going forward? Yes. However, um, I, I'm going to say the same thing to everyone else. Give it 20 minutes. I'd say give it 20 minutes. That's what uh, I said at the start of the podcast. Yeah, I know. And I agree, I agree with that because um, from talking to people, I do know, that this is absolutely not a movie for everyone. I mean, no. look, we've been over this. Nothing is for everyone, but it's not, it is really, um, it's not an easy watch at first, especially if you're a younger viewer who's really only used to like a more modern sensibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, but does it have an audience? Yes, I've, I've proved, uh, I watched it with a younger person who enjoyed it very much. And I think that proves it has an audience. Okay, I was a little worried about that when I picked this. First of all, when you guys said you hadn't seen it, I thought, oh, God, they're going to hate this freaking movie because it's, it, it is a difficult entry 
Uh, you know uh, what, Patrick, it, though? I did see, I talked to Simon about this last night. I did see like the first 20 minutes or so of this movie. And I know because I specifically remember the scene in which she gets raped. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think I ever watched the entire film. So my theory is I watched this movie when I was younger and then got turned off by, I don't know, the dialogue, the actor, something. I got turned off and never finished a movie. All the yelling at each other. Every Maybe. I mean, I don't think Gabriel it's a movie that. Yelling every line of his dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah, like I say, that can be hard for people to get into. I love it, but yeah, I'm not really sure beyond it's. It, this is not a general audience movie because I think a lot of people are going to get bored. I think, Rick, what you had brought up with how quickly it jumps, it can be disorienting at times. Like, it doesn't really feed you its story. This is not Lord of the Rings. It's not going to gently guide you along this Arthurian myth. It's just jumping in and out. If Arthur, this movie ends with Arthur getting stabbed by his, his son in a kind of a gruesome shot, really, and one of the coolest shots in the movie. Um, but it's not a typical hero moment, it, it, and he lets it happen too. That's the other thing; like he doesn't put up a fight. He has Excalibur drawn, and he just lets Mordred stab him right through the chest. Then he pulls the spear closer, and then he stabs Mordred. So son kills father father kills son it's not a happy moment this 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 isn't it doesn't line up with a lot of what people think of with epics you would think percival has the closest sort of hero moment because he finds the grail and he restores the king and and he's he's you know he seems like such a decent fellow percival was a decent fellow but he's not really the focus of this movie he's he's not in it that much um so yeah it doesn't have what people have come to expect from you'd think that Arthur is going to be this person that you're going to follow along this heroic journey, but you realize you're not really following Arthur all that much. Yeah. And then Merlin cuts out like two thirds of the way through and you're like, wait a second. Now I'm following Percival. What's going on here? That's what I understand about John Borman. I don't know how he made the movies that he made and because actually he got a green light, because if you think of point blank, like that movie in itself, like, I mean, just the fact that he was actually able to make that movie the way it is. Like, I mean, there's barely any dialogue spoken by the main character. It's a pitch dark fever dream. Like, it's a film noir. It's, he somehow he somehow managed to get creative control even for his first and second film. Forget forget about everything that he did afterwards, like movies like Excalibur. I mean, that's because he was making movies in the time before finance capital took over the world and mm-hmm. everything became all all aspects of film production became quantized. Uh, you know, that's just it's the it's the economy, baby. By the way, yeah. this movie has an amazing poster. Amazing. Yes, it's very good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Check out Excalibur. I highly recommend it, obviously. Um, Simon, can we find you anywhere online? Are you still no. doing Letterboxd at all? No. no longer. I mean, I'm sort of on there. But uh, and in fact, the only thing I've written about on there in like a month is Excalibur. But I it was only like a paragraph. Don't okay. don't even bother. <laughs> <laughs> I need at least like three volumes if I'm going to read about Excalibur. Exactly. Um, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'll occasionally write for GoombaStomp.com. I'm going to hopefully write more. We need to get in some, some good movie uh, screeners so that I can really start kicking things off. There, We'll get into that. Rick, well, you and I will talk about that. I do need some more screeners, though. And I know you get them in all the time, and I've, I've rejected some of them. Man, I got to start. I think I, I got to get over this hump where I just start taking. You have to start movies. saying yes to life, Patrick. Yes. I got to say yes to everything that comes my way. That That is that's the key right there. Because <laughs> I've been burned by so many bad ones that for a long time I was like, never again. I'm not doing any of this crap. Uh, but no, I got to get back into it. So, all right. That's uh, that's where you can find me online. I'm not really anywhere else. Rick, where can we find you and the podcast? 
You can find the podcast over at sorteditcinema.com, which will redirect you to goombastomp.com. But basically, sorteditcinema.com, you can find the archive of all the episodes dating back to episode 500. Before episode 500, I randomly re-upload some of the older shows to YouTube and the feed. You can listen to the show on iTunes, Amazon, I think Amazon, Spotify, Podbean, it's everywhere, and YouTube. And yeah, subscribe to the podcast, please, and uh, give us a rating if you listen on iTunes. And that's it. A lot of people listen on YouTube, which is fine. It's But just letting people know that it's available just about everywhere. SortedCinema.com. And Twitter handles Sorted Cinema, but like, yeah. It's all sort of cinema. It sure is, folks. All right. Uh, we will be back next week. We don't know what the pick is quite yet, but <laughs> we'll still be back. We'll see you then. Your eyes never leave me, Merlin. Can't I acknowledge beauty? Can't you acknowledge love? Perhaps you ache for what you've never known. Perhaps you lust for what you cannot have. Cannot have? But you promised. All your secrets, you said you'd show me everything. I've shown you too much already. Merlin, you counsel her to the king or to my sister? At your service, sir. Then answer me this. For years, peace has reigned in the land. Crops grow in abundance. There's no want. Every one of my subjects enjoys his portion of happiness and justice. Tell me, Merlin, have we defeated evil? As it seems we have. Good and evil. There never is one without the other. Where hides evil, then, in my kingdom? Always. Where you never expect it. Always. I know where. Where, Sir Gawain? I cannot say. You must speak your heart. You sit at the round table. Where is this evil? He's our best and our bravest. Why then is he never here? Without Lancelot, this table is nothing. Is there anyone here who doesn't think of a god? And now to be driven from us by a woman's desire! In the idleness that comes with peace, I see that gossip has bred its own evil.